I graduated from Baruch as valedictorian. <laughs> and that was that was most likely the only time that a Russian agent uh, gave the valedictory at a, an American business school. Business school, talking about the, the virtues of capitalism. My guest today is former Soviet KGB agent Jack Barsky. Jack Barsky was born Albert Dietrich in 1949 in East Germany. When he was a senior studying chemistry at a university in East Germany, he was approached by someone from the East German secret police, Stasi, and offered a job. He accepted and was then sent for training with the KGB. In 1978, when he was 29 years old, he was sent to the United States as a sleeper agent and given the alias Jack Philip Barsky. His mission was to get a U.S. passport, insert himself into American society, and to make contacts with foreign policy think tanks and get close to President Jimmy Carter's national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, in order to influence policy. Boy, the KGB, they thought big. After close to 20 years undercover, the FBI finally caught up with him. Since his capture, the FBI found him to be a tremendous source of information about KGB spy techniques, and he has worked with both the FBI and NSA. In 2014, Jack became a U.S. citizen. Today, he is a law-abiding, patriotic American living a normal life with his wife and family. I recently sat down with Jack to talk about how he led a double life, and why he decided to defect to the United States and become a citizen. Jack, thanks so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. It is my pleasure, sir. You know, Jack, over the last several days, I read your book, Deep Undercover, My Secret Life and Tangled Allegiances as a KGB Spy in America. And I want to tell you, pal, it sounds like I was reading fiction. Now, this is your life. Uh, it, it totally is just absolutely amazing. So before we begin with anything, how do I know I'm speaking to Jack Barsky today? No, you're not. Well, you, you are speaking to the, the documented Jack Barsky. That is indeed correct. But if you're referring to how do, how do you know that this isn't mostly fiction? Well, I, I got some really, really good uh, um, uh, support from people that uh, know my story from the other side. There's pe pe uh, people that uh, are still alive that uh, knew me way back when, when I was in Germany. And most importantly, uh, the FBI that uh, did a very thorough investigation. And uh, whatever I put in there, to, to the extent it can be verified, is verified, the rest of it, you just got to believe. <laughs> but, 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 you know, I got to tell you, uh, it, it, at this point, it makes no sense for me to lie anymore, you know, because I, I started out and as a child, as, as a young person, I was always called brutally honest. And then I had to live that grand old lie. Uh, eventually, I'm so much more comfortable with myself now that I can really tell the truth. Okay, so now, just so we back up here, because I want to tell you, I read this book, and I'm reading through this, and I'm saying, I, I, I just can't believe it, because it takes place in New York City. It takes place at Baruch College, which is a stone's throw from my house. In fact, we were talking before the show that several of my friends were probably passing you in the hallways at Baruch College in the early 1980s, and that's how you got in there. So let's start from the beginning. You were born in what was then East Germany, right after the partition, after World War II. And yes, which at the time was not yet a state. 
it, it became a state, the German Democratic Republic, six months after I was born. Got it. So it was the it was the Soviet occupied uh, uh, zone of Germany. So you grew up there. Your parents, uh, I'm assuming, are German. They where were they from? Your parents. Well, my my parents were uh, both from the uh, eastern part of Germany, pretty far east. And it turns out that uh, uh, I'm really uh, genetically only half German. The other the other half is divided into Czech and Polish because. This is the area where I grew up, where my parents grew up, where those uh, genes mingled and intermixed quite a bit. So you, you grow, you're growing up in post-World War II Germany, which especially in what was, you in the Soviet uh, territory, occupied territory, was pretty terrible. I think you wrote in the book that your parents had an average caloric intake of around 1,500 calories a day. That was the average uh, across the country, uh, and it, it's, it, it was skewed in, 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 in terms of it hit the big city dwellers much harder than uh, the folks that lived in the country. Uh, we had always enough to eat, but not always nutritious food. You know, we uh, our staple was potatoes, and you live in the country, you'll find a farmer who has, has enough potatoes, you can either buy them or trade. Uh, but you know, I I grew up very thin. I have a picture of uh, me when I was about eleven years old, and it looks horrible. I like so thin, and and uh, you know, I wanted to play sports, and but my heart wasn't developed, so I wasn't even allowed to play sports. It 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 eased over time, uh, but uh, the first ten years, I can't remember ever having been hungry. But I also cannot remember some really good food that I got in those days. So it's pretty amazing to me that in today's environment we have in America, we have so many people who are calling for socialism and a utopia that they have no idea about where they can go to McDonald's or Burger King and consume 1,500 calories at one sitting and still be hungry. And here you are in a whole entire country, or really a zone, would be, later became a country, where not even eating 1,500 calories a day. So where is this yeah, let me let me expand on this a little bit uh, as time went on and I was in my 20s. Uh, at that time, uh, food was readily available, but every time I go into a supermarket in the United States, I still marvel at what the variety and the, the, the amount of food available in this country, even, even when it was quote unquote good in, in the Soviet Union or in East Germany, you got like one of, of, of something or very often uh, you had to buy what they had, not what you wanted. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a huge difference. 100%. So you grew up in what later became East Germany. You were a smart kid. You went to university. You were studying chemistry. And then what happens that changes your life? Well, <clears throat> I studied chemistry. I finished my degree. I have a... Uh, master's degree, the equivalent of a master's degree in chemistry. And uh, <clears throat> uh, I uh, became an employee of the university uh, as a uh, <clears throat> assistant professor, taught a little math, taught a little chemistry. But uh, in my third year in, in college, I was approached by the KGB. And I had a relationship with uh, my handler. It was one person with whom I met on a regular basis. And it was a, it was pretty clear what they wanted me to do. 
but we took it took a long time getting to know each other. Well, how, because, how, does, how does that work, Jack? I'm, I'm I'm real sorry. I don't know the spy game. I'm sitting in class <laughs> one day. I'm teaching math or chemistry. Does someone come up to you and say, "Hi, I'm from the KGB," and shows you a KGB card and says, "We'd like you to work for us"? How does this work in the spy world? No, see, um, when somebody uh, from from an intelligence agency comes and introduces themselves, most likely they'll give you a cover name. They won't give you the real name. They won't show you ID at all. So, so I was initially approached by a a German national. The fellow spoke. Uh, uh, a very good German, uh, just, you know, accent-free German. Uh, he was most likely uh, a, uh, you know, a collaborator, one of those unofficial folks that worked with, worked with the KGB in, in our country. And, uh, and he introduced himself one, one day. Uh, he came to visit me at the uh, uh, dorm where I stayed. And I was, at, I was on a Saturday. I was alone in my room. And uh, he introduced himself initially as a representative of a local company, local optical company, uh, stating that he w wanted to just chat with me about uh, my future after graduation, which was a most idiotic cover story. I knew immediately that he wasn't telling me the truth because uh, in East Germany, uh, companies did not recruit. You were assigned places. So I don't know what uh, this guy was like, unlikable and incapable. But, you know, I knew what he was after. And, and so I played along and it, it came to a point where he changed his story and he said, yeah, I got to I got to come clean with, with you. Uh, I'm not really from that company. I work for the government. And then he asked the question that he wanted to have. That's the only question he came to see me for. And the question I can I can remember this very well. He asked, "Can you imagine to one day be working for the government?" And I just gave him an answer that uh, he understood. I said, "Yes, but not as a chemist." <laughs> so we had a an understanding that I'm willing to talk about intelligence work, I was pretty clear that this was not, uh, you know, Stasi that was looking to recruit me to to watch over uh, the uh, uh, the population and make sure that uh, there wouldn't be a counter revolution or something like that. So it, I was interested and he did his job. And then uh, a week wait, wait, later. Wait, Jack, one second before that. How does he find you? Uh, how does it, how does it work in the intelligence? Ah. This is this is very interesting. Um, I just yesterday had an interview, I know, chat with uh, my best German friend, who uh, at the age of sixteen became a, an unofficial collaborator for the Stasi, and he claims that it was he who fingered me, and 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 there is some merit to that. Uh, the, the Soviets didn't have access to files in East Germany. You know, this, they couldn't just go and like rummage around in files. So uh, when they went shopping for <clears throat> uh, candidates to do undercover work, uh, who possibly would be able to even uh, assume an, another, an, an identity of a different nationality, uh, they, they had to go and ask the Stasi. And apparently, you know, I got I was on a list of names that uh, they then uh, went through and started talking to people. Uh, according to uh, 
uh, retired, they're not alive anymore, but uh, at the time when they gave interviews, retired high-level KGB officers, they literally went through several thousand candidates to eventually uh, come up with about a dozen that they sent to the U.S. in the late 70s, early 80s. So once they had a name, at that point, I was easy to find. And Stasi, just for those who don't know, is what? The East German Secret Police? Yes, sir. <clears throat> what does it stand for? What does Stasi stand for? Uh, <clears throat> Staatssicherheitsdienst. It's literally uh, state security service. Okay. And they were, and you know, I was reading, I forgot where I saw this, but I was reading that in East Germany, uh, about a third of the population was spying on the other two thirds of the population. I'm not sure you, a third, but uh, the the overall uh, number that I remember is about a hundred thousand people that were e either employees or uh, or collaborators. And uh, interestingly enough, I also had a talk with a classmate of mine, high school classmate in Germany, and uh, the Stasi tried to recruit him to spy on his father because his father was a known Christian. Uh, these things w happen. They're not just in the movies. Wow. Okay. So they find you. And now that you you know the spy game pretty well, gosh, you stay deep undercover in the United States, in the middle of New York. Uh, what what did they see in you that they knew that this guy would make a great intelligence officer? Well, they saw a lot of things. Uh, first of all, they were looking for very bright people. Secondly, they, they were looking for people who weren't afraid to make decisions you know, make up their own mind. They obviously were looking for people who were ideologically correct. Would, nowadays, it would, we would call it politically correct. You know, I was a member of the Communist Party. I, I was a believer in communism. At that point, the, that belief was unshakable. And then they were also looking for, for an adventurous type, somebody who's not afraid to just do really, really crazy things. And, and you put this all together, uh, I fit that profile quite well. They weren't looking for tall people, by the way. Oh, all right, good. <laughs> they, I almost got disqualified because I'm six foot three. Uh, <laughs> really? Well, because you stick out too much? You don't want anyone who's... Yes, exactly. But I, all these other qualities that I had, in addition, uh, what, what we found out, and there was an accident, really, my ability to learn another language to a point where where... Uh, I'm almost indistinguishable from people who were born in a country. Uh, and at that point, I was just too valuable an asset to say, ah, the guy's too tall. They, they, they actually shared that with me and they uh, eventually decided, well, we sent him to America. That's, these are tall people. He'll be okay. And if you went to Japan, it wouldn't have worked out as well for you. <laughs> All right, so, they, so, they, so you meet with KGB. They like you. You pass the interview. You get the job. And what do they tell you the job is? <clears throat> well, initially, I, <clears throat> I was supposed to uh, go to West Germany and do some spying in West, West Germany, which is the easiest thing for a spy to do because same country, fundamentally, same background, same language, same everything. You don't have to learn anything other than spycraft. But when it turned out that, uh, you know, I, I also, as part of my training, I had to learn another language. And as I, I threw myself... Uh, with full force into this, 
And within about six months, I was able to read novels in, in the original. And I bragged about it. And that's when they said, hmm, let's see if we maybe maybe we can make him into an American. Well, you, and, you, you learned English on your own? Uh, I Initially, I had a tutor. I, I started from scratch, even though I had high school English, but I forgot everything. Started a couple of tutors, for, but from then then on, it was me just reading a lot and learning the the words. And by reading, you also learn the grammar rather than uh, academically. It becomes part of uh, how you speak. So I couldn't uh, I couldn't pass a grammar test right now, but I, I write well. <laughs> Okay, so after learning how to speak the language, they teach you the spy script, and that takes about how long? Do they find you at, at what age do they find you? Did you recruit uh, They found me at the age of, let me uh, count backwards, um, 21. So they find you at 21, they train you for how many years? Uh, I started, I started uh, I was being full-time KGB at the age of 23. I came to the United States at the age of 28. So there was roughly five years of training in between. <clears throat> well, so the only training I ever saw about spies is what I saw in James Bond movies. So tell me how, what kind of, what do they teach you? Like how to kill people seven different ways with a <clears throat> fountain pen? Now, the most important uh, part of training was uh, uh, spycraft uh, and operational stuff. Uh, and, and it starts with... Uh, and I had to learn uh, Morse code, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, shortwave uh, uh, reception, uh, decryption and encryption. This was, it was a pretty elaborate stuff. I, you know, I, I had a code that was developed spe specifically only for me, but this was all manual. Nowadays, things are a little different. Uh, uh, counter surveillance, very important. Uh, meetings uh and i don't know if you're familiar with that term dead drop operations uh and and you know on all that and also jack describe what a dead drop is well a dead drop is uh fu fundamentally uh an asynchronous handing over of material you know if, if uh for instance when i needed i i traveled periodically i traveled back behind the iron curtain and for that i always got a manufactured passport so in, in, to, in order to avoid a Russian diplomat slash KGB agent meeting me and handing me this thing, he put it in an oil can and threw it someplace at a, uh, at a spot where I would know when, uh, uh, when to pick, pick it up where. That's a dead drop operation. So they're, they're teaching this over a five-year period, dead drop, all spycraft. You're learning a language. You're learning the nuances of a language. Because right. what you're reading a book is not the same the way people talk. It's just uh, no. That is correct. I, I in Moscow I had a an, a, a native speaker, an American who had uh, def defected or whatever, emigrated from the United States uh, to uh, the Soviet Union, and I met with her twice a week for almost two years. And lastly, uh, I was also introduced uh, to two ex-spies also uh, they were american citizens in the in the world of espionage people who know a little bit about espionage they are rather famous uh they were helen and peter uh cohen atomic spies 
and and I met with them about once a week. So yes, I I learned conversational English as well. That is, uh, while in Germany, no way because they didn't have a trusted individual with whom I could uh, have interaction. But once they feel that you're ready, they pick the assignment for you, and that's to go into the United States. That's right. Now, you're never really ready. <laughs> you just, you know, they throw you in the water and you sink or swim. I guarantee you most most of uh, people like me sank. Explain to me, what, what actually did they do? They said, okay, you get on a plane, we're going to give you, I think it was $10,000, a fake yes. passport, and good luck. Uh, not quite. Uh, <clears throat> I I went to from, from Moscow to New York, it took about three weeks, uh, and, and it was a zigzag route uh, in order to um, avoid tracing me back to Moscow. I, I changed passports twice, once in Vienna and once in Rome. Uh, and the other thing that I had with me, the most important thing I had with me was a certified copy of a birth certificate that, under the name of Jack Barsky. This is who I was to become. Uh, and, and as I said, it took about three weeks, uh, and I met uh, I met uh, Soviet agents in two cities, Vienna and Rome, uh, and yeah, that was it. Uh, but fundamentally, the moment I uh, I stepped into the uh, departure hall in uh, in Chermetyevo, this is the, the uh, international airport in, in Moscow, um, I was on my own. There was no more, you know, can I, you know, no more talking to the boss, no more reporting back. I was on my own. I had a task. The immediate task was get to New York and then acquire documentation under the name of Jack Barsky so you can become a functional American citizen. What did your passport say? The fake passport they made? The fake passport, that was a Canadian. I don't know why they, why the, I, you know, they would never tell me things that, they thought I, sh I didn't need to know. So yes, the passport I entered the United States with was a Canadian as the only uh, passport, the, uh, the phony name of which I remember, William Dyson. That's not a surprise because that's the, that's the name I entered the United States with in Chicago. You come, to, so you, land, you, you come through Chicago with a fake passport of William Dyson. Th that is correct. And your objective now is to get enough identity, uh, identification as Jack yep. Barsky. Correct. And in those days, it was still doable. Um, uh, I, I, had to, I had to start really uh, at the bottom. And, what, and, and I, I think it, you still, I don't know if the rules are still the same, but in those days in New York, to get a driver's license, you needed to have two pieces of uh, two documents. One that showed where you live, and the other one was showed where you were born, a birth certificate. I had the birth certificate. The other one uh, at the time that was acceptable was a library card. <laughs> and, and, and that was supposed to be a piece of cake, right? You go to the library and you fill in an application, you get a card. Guess what? They asked me for identification. <laughs> the Russians didn't know that. So, so now... And this is why they picked somebody like me. I eventually found a, a way around this. <clears throat> I, uh, uh, one time I went to the Museum of Natural History and they had memberships. So I paid $50 for a membership and I got a plastic card 
uh, that had my name and my address on it. With that, I could get the library card. Wow. So they, so they gave you they gave you cash also for living expenses. Yes, I uh, well, I got one uh, infusion of cash because uh, for one year I didn't work because you know I I didn't want to work under the table. Uh, I just uh, worked worked on getting to know the city and 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 getting the documentation. Uh, particularly important uh, was to get a social security card, uh, and so. Uh, some sometime in the uh, at the end of this first year, I got another ten thousand dollars in a debt drop operation. That carried me into the point at at the point when I had my first job, and that paid enough for me so that I could live on that. I didn't need extra money anymore. So you you come to this country. You come to New York City. You rent an apartment. No, 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 no. This is one of those SRO single room occupancy hotels. Pretty, pretty. When certainly not a luxury hotel. Yeah, New York in the late seventies was not a luxury place. It was pretty, pretty. No, terrible. and and the thing is, in, in those places, if you had cash, you paid with cash. Nobody asked you who you were, where you came from, where you were going. So that was reasonably safe. But it didn't have an address. It did, you know, it didn't have a, you know, it, it wasn't like you. It, it, so so. In, in those, I had no job and I had no apartment, so I did not socialize. Period. I shouldn't. I couldn't have. Had so what do you do? You wake up in the morning, you, or you have this <laughs> SRO. You have your coffee. Now what? It's nine oh one. What are you doing? I I left the the hotel every morning at a certain time, and then spent the rest of the the day in the city. Uh, I got to know New York on foot really well. I took the subway to. Uh, you know, every every line to the very end. Uh, and, and, I, and sometimes I went to the movies. In those days, you could you could get a double feature on 42nd Street uh, for $2. Uh, you know, the, the, the floor was a little sticky. I'm not talking about those porn establishments. You could see some real movies. Uh, and, and then I came back uh, at around 5 to give the impression that I actually had something to do. You're building a, a job. You're building a cover. Yeah, right? yeah. Okay. Now, by the way, I read in the book, it was some outrageous uh, um, um, project they gave you where you had to get to infiltrate the United States, get close to Jimmy Carter's, uh, uh, is a big new Brzezinski, his secretary? Yeah, of- that, was a, that was a dream. Uh, well, I was trained to uh, fundamentally uh, collect political intelligence. In other words, get close to decision makers in foreign policy or at least influencers and and they mentioned a number of uh, uh, organizations uh, such as the Hudson Institute which is still in existence uh, Columbia University uh, the School of International Relations or whatever it's called mm-hmm. that was headed by Brzezinski who was then the uh, also then became the national security advisor for Jimmy Carter and, and he Brzezinski was the only name that they ever mentioned. Uh, and it wasn't a, uh, a clearly defined task. They didn't say, you must get together. But it would be great if you meet somebody like that. Well, that was a, like a pipe dream. So that was the you wish know, list. I started That was the wish first, list. <laughs> yeah, my first job was uh, I was a bike messenger. You know, if, if you're a bike messenger, you you really can't get close to somebody uh, who is uh, the head of a, a institute at Columbia University. 
<laughs> uh, by the way, I'm now mentoring graduate students at Columbia. So eventually I made it, but it took a long time. So, so during this first year, are you meeting other spies? Are you going to, uh, are you, you're communicating with Moscow of any progress that you're making? Yeah, well, the communication was, uh, I get, uh, once a week I got radio transmissions and, uh, you know, was encoded uh, uh, messages by a shortwave. And my report back went through the snail mail with secret writing. Oh. And so, you know, that the communication cycle was about three weeks. And so when I said they, they were looking for people who can make decisions on, on their own, I made a lot of decisions on my own. The, a lot of the advice that I got in Moscow was given to me by people who thought they knew who didn't know. I had to find out myself. Right, like like to get a library card and all these other things. Yeah, and and you know, get get your first job without having a uh, security card. Proof that you worked someplace else. You so would, I found that Bike Messenger was was the way to go. Nobody asked questions. And, you know, and, and one would think that the KGB should know these kind of simple things, right? They they, sh they should have, but they didn't. And this this is the uh, uh, this is the delusions that these were all smart people. And they had spent time in New York, uh, but as diplomats. And so they didn't live like Americans. They interacted with Americans, but that's like going to the zoo and, 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 and observing the tigers, but you don't know how to, how to really be a tiger. Yeah, yeah, good point. So now you're, you're, you're in this first year, you're building up a cover. By the way, during this period of time, this is like the mid-70s? Mid 1970s or late? 70s? Uh, no, and I arrived in 78. Uh, uh, I I was done getting my my do documentation in 1980. So 1980. So those those two years. How many spies? Because I lived in New York. I was going to college. I just got to high school at that time, and I just graduated. <clears throat> how many spies from the Soviet Union, KGB, were in New York at the time? Well, <clears throat> you you got to think that at least half the uh, 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 Soviet diplomats, uh, and there were two types, the ones that worked at the United Nations and then the ones that were, uh, you know, at, in the embassy, but that was uh, that was in, in Washington, D.C. At least half of those were officially KGB. Uh, and that's, uh, as far as people like me, a lot fewer. Um, <laughs> no more than... It, 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 I don't think it, 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 it uh, added up to double digits. Really? Yes, and, and this is uh, verifiable. Uh, there was some information that came directly out of KGB archives that indicate that in those years, the KGB trained about 10 of us and sent 10 of us into the United States. So you're staying in New York, and then you go in 1980, you do all your documentation, you get your job as a bike messenger, and then you go to Baruch College. Why do you go to yes, Baruch? Yes, and, and uh, I, I'm always a little bit uh, in, inaccurate with the years, but I think it was 19, <clears throat> 1982. Uh, I, first, I had to get a an high school equivalency diploma. Uh, that took me a little time. Uh and then I, I, and they wanted me to maybe go to Colombia, and, and they had no idea what the tuition was. <laughs> I couldn't possibly afford this. I had to be able to cover uh, the fact that I went to school full time 
and had the money to do that. So I, uh, uh, City University was the place was uh, was the uh, the school to go to, and and Baruch was at the time. You know, I was supposed to maybe study economics and Baruch would have been the school. Um, and I also took a student loan, you know, I took $10,000 out. So at that, and then, and I still work part-time as a bike messenger. Uh, so nobody could have uh, questioned or, or th- can't come up with the idea that I had funds coming from places other than my work. And you're still living in this SRO? No, no, it's, <laughs> as soon as I... Uh, as I got this paying job within a month, I disappeared from that place. And I wound up in Queens in a nice uh, one bedroom apartment that I could afford. I think the rent was $270 a month in those days. And you're meeting people, you're creating friends, you're having a friends network of people is? Slowly, most li- uh, the most uh, most of the people that I befriended at the time was, was in a natural situation with the young people in college. And a couple of professors, though. But, you know, going out there and socializing in circles uh, where I would have found people that were of of, uh, direct interest wasn't that easy because, you know, I uh, school, part time work, still a bike messenger, limited means, no way. When I had my first job at MetLife, the job took over because I wound up in. uh, data processing, what they called this in those days, and that had a lot of night and weekend work. So, so you know, I just wasn't situated to mingle, uh, neither, neither time-wise nor money-wise, to mingle with folks that that were of interest. That happened over time, but uh, at that time, I was already done with the KGB. Now. You you already at this point uh, you're ideologically in tune with communism. They pick the best best and the brightest. They send you over here, and you're here for two three years. You're looking at an American way of life where we have yeah. were you a Yankee or a Met fan back in the day. <laughs> Neither, but I became a Yankee fan because my my son was a Yankee fan, and and when my son uh, who is now 30 years old, when he got into in, in high school. Uh, he got into baseball. I really started taking an interest in baseball. And I now I understand baseball better than football. Uh, what I was a Knicks fan. So you're a Knicks time. fan. Okay, so you're a Knicks fan. You're, you're, you're acclimating to, uh, to, to New York, really an American way of life that, especially in New York City, where you have people from all over the world. There's freedom. Right. There's New York back then was, a, we had Mayor Koch. He was about as uh, vocal as a mayor could be, very very to the people used to walk around town going, how am I doing? Yeah. You, how am I doing? How am I right, doing? Right. He was, a, he was a man of the people. And, and I, I remember, but let, let me just put something in here because the, it just uh, it popped into my head. Uh, we had a <clears throat> water shortage while I was a messenger and uh, Koch came out with this, uh, this saying, if it's mellow, let it, if it's yellow, let it mellow. If it's brown, flush it down. Right, 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 right. Right. I remember that time. Yeah, he, I remember- he was, he, he was he was a people person. He was a people person. And tell me, the, the, the uh, restaurants, they didn't serve water at the table unless you asked for it because we couldn't right. waste water. Right? So, so yep. you're, 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 are you having like, a, a, you know, an ideological clash? What you learned in the Soviet Union, what you grew up on, 1,500 calories a day and a lifestyle that's drab and blah. And now you come to yep. New York City, the capital of the world. You're seeing the freedom that's here. You're seeing the opportunity that someone who just literally came here with nothing 
is able to make something of themselves. No one's asking you. No one's bothering you. You have freedom. Are you starting to say, wait a second, you know, it, it, things aren't lining up the way I, I thought they would? Well, <clears throat> see, ideology, especially <clears throat> if it's uh, if you get this from childhood on, is not that easy to shed. Uh, you start rationalizing. <clears throat> One of the rationalizations was that the United States was doing so well because they stole everything from the third world. Uh, <clears throat> so I, I, I clearly the, the, the difference instead of, uh, of living was like phenomenal, but that didn't get me off of communist ideals. So, so you're, you're, you're still a communist. You love, you still love the communist yeah, way of life yeah. and it makes all the sense to you. So what you're seeing here, the, you're rationalizing now, away. No, it's, yes, but some of the things uh, uh, that uh, we were taught uh, just didn't pan out. So when I started working for uh, a mutual insurance company, and in those days, insurance companies, banks, and the military-industrial complex were were like the evil representatives of capitalism. Right. So I'm I'm starting to work for MetLife, and and I couldn't find any evil people in my immediate environment. <laughs> they they paid me well. They fed me lunch. Uh, and this was one Madison Avenue where, you know, 10,000 people worked there. Yeah. They couldn't have them go out for lunch. So you got free lunch uh, and the people were nice. It felt almost like East Germany. <laughs> so, so I knew that, oh, not everything I was taught was, was correct. So I slowly moved, you know, from way left towards the center uh, politically speaking. Uh, when I voted, I, I voted illegally twice. I voted Democrat. You voted for Carter in 1980. Uh, I, I certainly did. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that should, that should, <laughs> that's just something about the Democratic Party, huh? That a KGB well, guy feels okay with that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. All right. Great. Uh, <laughs> all right. So you're doing this now, and now you go to Baruch. What are you majoring in in Baruch? You go to Baruch for what? Well, I was supposed to, uh, this is what uh, the KGB folks told me, study economics and then get a job on Wall Street. Well, not a bad idea. So uh, <clears throat> I, I enrolled with the intent to, to get an economics degree. And then I had to take one computer course. And I say, oh, my God, this is awesome. I love it. And without even checking with, a, with my handlers, I just changed my major. And I got into computers. And interestingly enough, when I told him back in Moscow, when I went back for my debriefing every two years, I told him that, you know, I'm, I'm about to graduate with a degree in computer systems. They thought it was a good idea. And it was an easy way to get a job uh, and an easy way to, to rather quickly make a significant amount of money. So, so they let it go. They, I wasn't rep reprimanded for that. And I loved it. I mean, this this was this was great. I finally could use my brain again, <laughs> and and play with play with a computer. You know, deep down inside, I'm a nerd, um, and this this was probably the best job I've ever had was computer programming. Mm. Um, and and at that point, I don't know exactly when that happened. Um, I, uh, there there was a pivot point when the spying got in the way of my real job. And this is, uh, I believe, something that the 
Russians were aware of because, you know, if you're really successful establishing an identity in another country that is not your true self, but it eventually it becomes your true self. And that's when uh, your, your asset uh, in, in, in the other country, if, you, if you're the KGB, your asset uh, is uh, in danger of uh, doing things you want them to, you don't want them to do. So you graduate, you graduate Baruch, you get a job, life is great, and all this time you're supplying this, the, the KGB with information about the country. What are you telling them? What, what, are, the, what are they, what, what information that looking back was, you know, looking back 40 years later, I don't know how much information, what it meant, but during the day, what was like pivotal information you were passing along? Okay, so, so two, two things that, uh, that I, th I think they considered uh, of value, other than uh, the fact that I was actually there. Uh, and, and, you know, that part of my value, I was never really told, but in hindsight, I know that uh, because there were times during the Cold War that um, when uh, the Soviet Union and, uh, and the United States got very close to kicking out their diplomats from the other country, and then the only ones left behind enemy lines, so to speak, would have been the illegals like me. Um, so uh, the other the other two things of value here were uh, first of all I was to periodically send them information how Americans react to certain uh, things that happened around the world things like uh, shooting down the Kore Korean airliner like or, or, or how the Americans you know how they might vote this kind of stuff. They got these reports, a lot of them from the, from the diplomats, but but they read the New York Times and then copied that. Um, and the other thing is, uh, uh, I I was supposed to act as a talent scout, meet people, uh, particularly in college, you know, and uh, uh, because college students eventually could uh, wind up in in uh, positions. Uh, either an industry or in the government of value. So meet them, describe them, profile them, and send that information to the center. Did you recruit? And, uh, did you recruit people while you were here? I know this. This is not not how it works. Uh, uh, when it comes to recruiting and running an agent, there's always three individuals involved, at least in uh, uh, in within the KGB. The first one who spots the talent, the second one who recruits the talent, and the third one who runs the talent. They don't know about each other. And the first, as a spotter, I was never told what they did with the information because that's called, this is the rules of conspiracy. By the way, I gotta, I gotta throw that in into the mix here uh, because it's really delicious. I, I graduated from Baruch as valedictorian. <laughs> and that was, that was most likely the only time that a Russian agent uh, gave the valedictory at a, an American business school. Business school, talking about the, the virtues of capitalism. Amazing world we live in, eh? So yeah, and, and you know what? You know what? Uh, the, the speech uh, was about five minutes long, and I, uh, I talked about, and it sounds almost like an, uh, left in those days, left-wing Democrat ideology. I talked about developing capitalism with a human face, right? Naya, <laughs> I just said something in German, Naya. Uh, <laughs> anyway, so I just wanted to throw that in because it's pretty bizarre. And how, how long are you doing this before before trouble starts, before you realize that the FBI might be on to you? 
Okay, so I didn't realize that they thought uh, uh, I it was I was in my tenth year. Uh, I already was. Uh, my, my I had uh, passed my ten year anniversary, which was Columbus Day, uh, nineteen eighty eight. Uh, when and in December, the uh, Soviets, uh, the KGB, uh, uh, warned me that there it was it was a very strong warning. It was uh, an emergency a graphic emergency signal that had only one interpretation, get out of the country. Uh, and my escape route was planned to go to Canada and then uh, uh, I would be exfiltrated out of Canada back into uh, the other side of the <clears throat> Iron Curtain. And uh, I didn't go because something else that the KGB didn't know uh, was the fact that I had an 18 month old daughter in this country. And I really, really struggled with, you know, I wanted to take care of her. I loved this girl. I mean, this is the first time that, that I had a, an, an attack of, uh, unconditional love. I mean, just like, this is the kind of love that I, I would give her everything. And what I got back was a smile. Right. <laughs> uh, and, uh, so I ignored that sign and I, uh, um, uh, intensified my uh, counter surveillance measures. I tried to figure out, was I really in danger? And I determined I wasn't. And I was pretty sure that I was right because my training was so good, but they were insistent. And eventually it's the first, the only time that they actually sent somebody to very briefly speak to me. And uh, there was on a subway platform of the A train at 80th and Hudson in, in Queens. Uh, where he came up to me uh, and and whispered into my ears, you got to come home or else you're dead. So I knew now uh, I had to make a decision. I, I either go or I stay. And if I stay, I have to tell him a, a story why I stayed. And I didn't want to defect. I still had that residual loyalty to my country, East Germany, which was still allied with the Soviet Union. And... Uh, I don't know. Nowadays, I'm thinking it may have been the Holy Spirit because I came up with this phenomenal lie, which I told him in, in a letter in secret writing. It says, I, I can't come back. I have AIDS, HIV AIDS. Death sentence in those days. And certainly did, they didn't want to have somebody with that kind of a disease in their country. And it worked. Now, I didn't know that it was going to work because they, they could have like determined the other guy is lying and now we're going to go after him. I knew that was a possibility. And so well, for about three months, I lived in fear. When they said that you'd be dead, who would kill you? They would? The KGB? No, or she, the see, you can interpret this uh, one way or the other. You know, you, you can take it as straight. You know, it was spoken by a Russian with an accent. You know what dead means. You know you're dead. Your you, your cover is blown. You can say you're you're dead. Uh, it's a it's it's not the word I would use in a situation like that. But it it can be interpreted that way. Or, you know, we're going to kill you. And um, they I I knew uh, of a couple of cases that were out in public uh, where the KGB went after defectors. They uh, betrayal of the motherland was to be punished by death. Yeah, yeah. Now, now my, my, uh, the saving grace was that I wasn't a Soviet citizen. 
I was a contract worker as a German. You know, all of this you puzzled together. At, at, in hindsight, you figure it out later. But at the time, for as I said, for about three months, I, I lived in fear. And I, uh, you know, for instance, I, I made sure that I was not predictably at a certain place at a certain time. So I changed the way I went to work. I changed the time and on and on and on. Uh, and I also uh, made sure that, uh, you know, really the FBI wasn't really chasing me. And I was right. So after three months, I, th I thought, you know, I was, I was pretty much, uh, uh, I, I was pretty much in the clear. And I, and I, I was married to this girl, Chelsea, for whom I stayed. Uh, and I, at that point, I said to her, okay, why don't we, why don't we go see if we can buy a house? That was the decision point where officially I was, I was, uh, I knew that I would live the rest of my life as an American citizen without necessarily ever having to talk with the FBI or being, being discovered. And so you're still playing this game and no one is on to you really. You keep this up until what, a couple more years later before your cover is blown? Or another 10 well, years. Well, the, the cover was blown uh, fundamentally by somebody who betrayed his ex-organization. It was a fellow who, by the name of Vasily Mitrokin, he he was a senior uh, uh, KGB employee who uh, worked in the archives. And they had piles and piles, you know, like rooms full of uh, uh, files. And he uh, would, um, he had a, he found he had an early um, epiphany that that system was terrible because he he could read some of the stuff and you know the internal stuff the the gulag and all that so he said oh, I'm the only thing I can do is like collect information and he would take snippets of paper that he uh, written on by hand out day after day year after year. And after uh, uh, so many years, he decided to uh, offer this to, uh, initially he offered it to the CIA who said, no, thank you, uh, because they, they didn't have a clue. The person who he uh, spoke with was a junior employee at the, at the embassy. And then he wound up with, uh, at MI6, uh, British intelligence, and they, opened him, they received him with open arms and uh, got him to England. And, and eventually some of that information was shared with the FBI. And amongst uh, uh, the notes there, there was just a name, Jack Barsky, uh, designation, uh, illegal, living somewhere in the Northeast. And that's how the FBI found me. If 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 I had taken on a, a name like John Smith or something like that, they wouldn't have found me. You know, in all this, when you put it all together, all these quote unquote accidents uh, allowed me to be able to speak to you now, allowed me to eventually uh, go back to Germany, allowed me to like uh, take the two, I had developed a split personality pretty much to, to merge these two personalities and uh, you know, live out reasonably happy and uh, reasonably sane to the extent you can be reasonably happy with that kind of a background or sane. 
but uh, that's so that's the the rest of the story. The FBI then introduced themselves and and uh, obviously to me w once I found out that uh, they want information in exchange for my freedom, I was uh, I was uh, uh, relieved, to put it mildly. So this was what 1997, 98 or so. Yeah, nine, nine, in that neighborhood, I believe it was 1997. So you uh, never incarcerated, you're, ne you're never prosecuted, no, nothing, zero. Not a, no, I was detained one, uh, for two hours the first time we met, quote unquote, when they introduced themselves. Uh, they took me to a motel and uh, and talked with me for a couple of hours. When I made it clear that I would be. Uh, 100% cooperative. I think I made a pretty good impression. Uh, but they weren't sure at the time. Uh, they let me go home after those two hours, but they had a, a large contingent of folks uh, in the area just in case uh, I were to try to run. So you're, you're in this country for close to 20 years, deep undercover, giving the Soviets the information that they need. Yes. And passing yourself off is not only a, a, a good American, but Val Victorian of Baruch, a responsible guy, a father, a husband, a businessman, making money, seeing it, yeah. and, and right under the noses of, of the FBI. Yep. Uh, <laughs> here's another tidbit. Uh, that's something that's not in the book because it happened after the book was finished. I'm now friends with a retired FBI agent uh, whose task at one point he was moved to um, uh, to New York, where he was supposed to look for people like me. Didn't find any, but he found me in in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, many years later. <laughs> uh, uh, people like us were fundamentally not findable unless somebody pointed to you know me with a name. So wait, Jack. If this whatever. if this agent wasn't didn't turn over information to MI6, you could have still been operating. Uh, that is true. I had stopped, uh, but there's there's always a possibility that, and I I, I cannot say how I uh, would have uh, reacted. Let's say if a a Russian national, so like you know, working for Russian intelligence, were to come to me and offer me a lot of money for stuff that I had access to. Right. I honestly, depending upon, it's, it's so easy to say, you know what? Nah, I wouldn't have done it. I'm not, I'm not, this is not right because you can't. If somebody says, here's a million dollars and all we need is the, uh, the, the, the schematic of the New York uh, state electric grid. I don't know. Right. Now I wouldn't do it anymore. <laughs> but well, well, it, it well, now depends you, upon you, the time. You became an American citizen. You're a full patriotic American citizen living in the United States. And what, 2014, I believe you became a citizen? Correct. So you've been a citizen of this country, uh, um, never prosecuted. I believe you also work with or aid the NSA and the FBI on espionage tactics right. of the KGB. Right. So uh, with uh, your background of, of all this, of espionage and, and the world of espionage, who's the, who would you say the top spy agency in the world today is? Okay, uh, one of them doesn't exist anymore, but uh, let me give you three, and none of them uh, are US or Russia. Uh, uh, the Mossad, Israel, uh, Cuban intelligence, and the Stasi. So 
Mossad, and who's the second? The Cuban intelligence. Oh, Cuba. I, I forgot Cuba. what they were called. And, and you know, the Mossad is, is, is obvious because Israel has been, uh, f for Israel, since Israel, uh, the state of Israel came into existence, they were fighting for the survival, real survival, not just like, you know, uh, something is coming up uh, 10 years from now. Uh, the Mossad is like uh, absolutely excellent. Uh, the Cubans had it easy because of, um, you know, so the diaspora, so many Cubans moving to Miami. So it was very easy to introduce agents into the United States. And, and, the, and the East Germans uh, had the Stasi that had an easy time operating in West Germany. Uh, so that, uh, so really the Mossad to me is the one that uh, deserves the gold medal. So it's now close to 40 years later. If you're giving this speech now at Baruch, Val Victorian, you're speaking to a lot of millennials who believe communism, socialism, communism, alternative government, socialism, alternative form of economic, uh, rule or... Just a different way of life. Living the life you've lived, learning what you've learned, becoming an American citizen from East Germany, from K, what would you be telling them? What would be your message today? Well, this is the kind of speech uh, that I'm still hoping to be able to give one day. I, I have it already written out in several essays. Um, first of all, I would start with... Uh, what I got to know pretty well is the American Constitution, which is, in, in my view, the best, uh, most elegant, most uh, uh, the, the 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 best document ever written about how to run a society, run a country. Uh, and when we're talking about the opposite, the opposite is, uh, you know, the opposite to me is collectivism based uh, uh, opposing a democratic republic that we supposedly still have is collectivism and collectivism uh, uh, it's already starting in this country you know the left is a highly collectivist uh, you know it takes a village right uh, that book that uh, supposedly uh, Hillary Clinton wrote uh, collectivism then typically it moves towards socialism and communism and it hasn't ever worked in history and and this is and this is and this is inbuilt into the communist uh in the communist ideology the basic tenet uh that uh, was written down or or expressed by Karl marx is from each to their capabilities to each according to their needs now, who determines what you're capable of and what what I need? So you, now you need somebody who is the determ, deter, determinant, and so we we and that eventually becomes the party, and the party is hierarchical. And before you know it, everything becomes a dictatorship. And in history, every revolutionary movement that succeeded eventually wound up uh, in in a dictatorship. Period. No change. And the funny thing is. That, it's not funny, but the folks that uh, the the initial revolutionaries very often, you know, become victims of their own revolution, and and what you see right now, uh, when you look at what's what's happening with Black Lives Matter, 
that was supposed to be a grassroots movement, and they're building a hierarchy. Isn't that interesting? This is this is George Orwell's Animal Farm, right? Everyone's equal, and yes, the pigs sir. are all uh, equal. And you know, I think it was yes. Rousseau who said that every revolution starts to consume its own. And yes, uh, it does. Yeah, that <laughs> we're seeing that. And uh, boy, I hope you write that. I hope you deliver that essay. Or I hope it's in print one day. Uh, I know a lot of Americans could learn from um, what you your your life experience and what you've seen, and basically shed light on on what. What I think is just a misguided way. They, they're just misguided and they just don't get what's going on. They don't see the bigger picture. Jack, I want yeah. to tell you, man, this book, uh, if you didn't read this already, it, it's go out and get this. Deep Undercover, how Jack Barsky was deep undercover in the United States, in New York, my city, for 20 years, and hardly anyone knew. I think nobody knew, right? It was just your handler. Until you <laughs> got right. called out. You were so good, you could have been, you could have been spot for the next... 20 years and no one would have found you. Yes. And uh, thank God the ending is what the ending yeah. became as, uh, it, as, as it's laid out in the book. Jack, all I could say is I'm glad you're on our side. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm so happy that uh, you're an American citizen. You're going to live out your life here and you have a beautiful family. And uh, you could spread that message of, of what a great country we have. And I don't think anyone better than a former KGB agent uh, could, could tell that story. I'm still working on it, sir. <laughs> Great. Jack, I want to thank you so much. I greatly appreciate the time you spent and just what I've learned from you. And I wish you continued success and God bless you and your family. God bless you too, sir. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on the Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.